Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. U.S.-China relations reach a new low point as Congress scrambles to respond to the health and economic crisis in this country. And it's ironic indeed, is it not, that the candidate who was calling for a strengthening of the state, who was calling for universal health care, which we need desperately to confront this crisis, now seems to be on the verge of leaving the race for the presidency just as his ideas are needed more than ever. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, on its 17th anniversary, the U.S. invasion of Iraq still lives on in infamy as an illegal war of aggression and terror. There is really a sort of taboo in this country on any comparison of, you know, U.S. imperialism and, and militarism to what Germany did in World War II. All this and more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, as the number of confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States exceeded 10,000 on Thursday, with at least 179 deaths, President Donald Trump held a press conference in which he doubled down on his right to call the virus the China virus or Chinese virus or Wuhan virus, and even deflected a question about a Chinese-American reporter being taunted with the term Kung Flu by a member of the White House staff. More on the geopolitics of coronavirus after headlines with Professor Gerald Horn. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers scrambled to finalize an economic stabilization plan with progressives like Senator Bernie Sanders advocating for $2,000 a month to every household, while Republicans and the White House unveiled a package that would provide hundreds of billions of dollars in loans to big corporations and small businesses, large corporate tax cuts, and checks of up to 1200 for taxpayers. The plan would also place limits on an already limited paid leave program enacted this week, which only covers 20% of U.S. workers. In other national news, Governor Gavin Newsom of California on Thursday ordered California's 40 million residents to stay at home as much as possible in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, many items on the calendar here in D.C. were canceled as venues were shut down, including the Supreme Court, for the first time in more than 100 years. Rallies were scheduled for outside the Supreme Court, which had been scheduled to hear oral arguments on several cases, including on the DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, and on Trump's attempts to shield his tax returns from lawmakers and prosecutors. And in what was their last scheduled in-person meeting for now, the D.C. Council passed on Tuesday an emergency bill in response to the COVID-19 epidemic. It extends unemployment, compensation to those unemployed due to the pandemic, prohibits evictions of residential and commercial tenants, prohibits utility shutoffs for non-payment, and extends public benefit programs. Jeffrey DeWitt, Chief Financial Officer for the District, 
told the council about the expected impact on the hospitality industry, workers, and city revenue. You take the fact that we're currently about 4.9% in an unemployment situation. If you have a large amount of uh, layoffs in that particular sector, you could be approaching between 15 and 20% unemployment on a temporary basis if, those, uh, if there's large layoffs in those industries. The numbers we're seeing from Open Table and uh, from discussions with the restaurant industry are more than 50% reduction in activity last week. Uh, that's obviously going to be larger given that many of them are closed except for pickup and delivery. And the hospitality industry, their occupancy rates were in the 40%. They expected them to go to the 20% and then drop to the 10% level uh, if this shutdown continues. Details of all the relief measures in the D.C. Council emergency bill are listed at dccouncil.us. And finally, in culture and media, home entertainment is ruling and home work is ruling, too. Some educators and organizations are raising concerns about the Zoom video service, which allows individuals to meet virtually in a video conference. According to the website MorningConsult.com, Zoom's privacy policy says that it may collect personal information such as payment data and a device's IP address from anyone who interacts with its products, while also collecting information about the recorded meetings that will take place in the video conference. In addition, Zoom's storage policies are receiving renewed attention from privacy advocates and experts, especially as educators contend with how to comply with standing student privacy laws and employees deal with a lack of data privacy protections. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everm. well as the number of confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the united states exceeded 10,000 on thursday with at least 179 deaths president donald trump held a press conference in which he doubled down on his right to call the virus the china virus or the wuhan virus and even deflected a question about a chinese american journalist being taunted with the term Kung Flu by a member of the White House staff. But this election cycles race-baiting by Trump, this time targeting Chinese people instead of Mexicans, is having a larger geopolitical impact as it targets the world's first or second largest economy, depending on how you count it. Here to discuss the pandemic in geopolitical terms is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, 
author of more than three dozen books, including most recently, White Supremacy Confronted U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa, From Rose to Mandela. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I shared with you an article by Pepe Escobar in the Global Research News. And I, he, he's also a regular contributor to the Asia Times. And he was putting forth the idea that all the finger pointing by the U.S., what I call before race baiting and accusations that China was somehow irresponsible in its handling of the virus that has spread throughout the world has caused China to recalibrate its relationship with the United States and to the point that since the opening of China in 1978, which you've discussed so much with us, that now China views the U.S. as an enemy and not as a partner in the way that it has been for more than 40 years. So I guess I'll just start with that. Well, relations between the United States and China, as your comment suggests, are approaching the level of freefall. This public health crisis has morphed into an economic crisis as you watch the stock market go into freefall, and now a foreign policy crisis. The Immediate trigger, as you suggested, was Mr. Trump referring to the so-called Chinese virus, the China virus. His supporters say, well, what's wrong with that? After all, there is reference to West Nile and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, where different viruses are given geographical designations, but China disagrees. Recently, they expelled a Wall Street Journal reporter because a headline in the Wall Street Journal, referred to China as the so-called sick man of Asia, which China is quite sensitive to because it evokes an earlier era of Chinese weakness. And in retaliation for the United States expelling Chinese journalists within the last few days, China has now expelled journalists from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And interestingly enough, at that press conference that you made reference to with Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump also (laughs) assailed these newspapers, in particular the Wall Street Journal, for a page one story on March 19th, which detailed Mr. Trump's uh, incompetence with regard to confronting the public health crisis. Now, China, in response to the COVID-19 eruption, has been sending massive aid all over the world. And in fact, Alexander Vucic, the president of Serbia, said that European solidarity with Serbia in the light of this healthcare crisis is a fantasy, while Chinese solidarity is real. And I think that that reminds us of a geopolitical reality that few make reference to, which is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, what you've basically seen is that those countries formerly referred to as so-called Moscow satellites or Soviet satellites are now firmly within a Chinese sphere of influence, not least referring to Eastern European nations and former Soviet republics in Central Asia, not least because of the so-called multi-billion, perhaps trillion-dollar Chinese initiative, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which involves the building of 
super highways, ports, bridges, and all of the rest. Now, this COVID-19 crisis comes in the wake of growing tension between Beijing and Washington, not only with regard to the expulsion of these journalists, but recall as well that just recently from China, there emerged the allegation that the virus actually arose in China in the aftermath of a late 2019 visit to Wuhan of U.S. Pentagon authorities. In other words, China is blaming the United States for creating this virus and media all over the world, not only in China, you've seen reference to previous examples of bioengineering. Uh, You might recall the case of Dr. Death in apartheid South Africa, who was aligned with Dr. Larry Ford of Irvine, California, in developing pathogens to be used against liberation fighters. You had a similar process unfold in Rhodesia in the 1970s. And just a stone's throw from where you are in Washington, D.C., is Fort Detrick, Maryland, which on a regular basis develops a witch's brew of toxins and bioagents for warfare. And, of course, we all know that it was not so long ago that the Cubans charged that the U.S. intelligence agencies helped to implant swine flu in the Cuban pig population, which caused the Cubans to destroy a good deal of their pig population. And something happened in China quite similarly just a few months ago. Uh, Speaking of Cuba, uh, Telesur has reported that Cuba has developed various kinds of therapies to use against COVID-19, including interferon, which is being manufactured in China and is now being shipped to Venezuela. And let us hope that the poor diplomatic relations between Havana and Washington would not prevent this kind of therapy being shipped to the United States. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about when you were talking about the germ labs. And and when you mentioned the lab in Fort Detrick, Maryland, in this area, some of the reports have talked about this lab being shut down last year. And this was shut down right before some military games or perhaps the visit of the Pentagon officials that you mentioned to China. And that has fueled the speculation among the press in in China and also because the United States has not answered questions about the nature of why it was shut down and also the fact that a CDC official testified in Congress that people who had died of the flu here in the U.S. may have had coronavirus and it was misdiagnosed as the flu. So I don't know if you saw any of those those stories. Well, I'm familiar with those stories, and I think that what this speaks to is a more aggressive posture with regard to the journalistic community and on Capitol Hill with regard to this dangerous unleashing of the coronavirus and the disease COVID-19 that is a product of that virus. I should also say that uh, another example of this deteriorating relationship between China and the United States is the targeting 
of Chinese and Chinese American academics and researchers being scrutinized and arrested for espionage, attacks on Chinese Americans in the streets of the United States along the line of that unfortunate reference that you just noted concerning so-called Kung Flu. And in an airport just a few days ago, I saw a man of apparent Asian ancestry wearing a t-shirt that carried the slogan, quote, I'm Asian, not Chinese, unquote. In other words, don't attack me because I'm not Chinese. What's also remarkable in light of this crisis, I'm afraid to say, is the Chinese and the Chinese-American response, which seems to be uh, oblivious to some of the racist dynamics of the United States of America. I mean, for example, the official China Daily published uh, in China uh, repeatedly has attacked affirmative action in the United States, uh, suggesting that it's harmful to the interests of Asian Americans. And uh, in that realm, you have the spectacle of certain uh, Chinese-American interests uh, who are attacking affirmative action at Harvard, who've attacked the Mexican-American school chancellor of the New York City school system, Richard Carranza, because he's trying to open up a Stuyvesant High School and Bronx High School of Science and other exclusive public schools to more black and brown students, which is being attacked as eroding the interests of Chinese American students. However, let us hope that one of the ultimate results of this entire crisis is a junking of the line enunciated by former U.S. President Bill Clinton in one of his early State of the Union messages when he said the, the so-called era of big government is over. Uh, this was a capitulation to neoliberalism. It was a capitulation to republicanism and Ronald Wilson Reagan. It was a reflection of that line from Reagan that the scariest words a U.S. citizen can hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. It has led to the privatizing of public education, the the proliferation of private toll roads, and more than that, a slashing of funds for public health, including the eradication and elimination of a pandemic office at the National Security Council of the White House, which was primed particularly to confront the kind of crisis that we are now enduring. Now, this is particularly appropriate to mention because this crisis does not seem to be disappearing anytime soon. Uh, we're often told that the United States is just a step or two behind Italy with regard to this crisis. And just the other day, 400 people died overnight in Italy, the equivalent of a jumbo jet crashing. If that's the case, perhaps, uh, let us hope not, you can expect something similar in the United States sooner rather than later. And it's ironic indeed, is it not, that the candidate who was calling for a strengthening of the state, who was calling for universal health care, which we need desperately to confront this crisis, now seems to be on the verge of leaving the race for the presidency, just as his ideas are needed more than ever. I'm, of course, speaking to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Well, I think that he took out a full page ad. I just saw it on TV 
took out a full page ad basically saying I'm not quitting and there was a list of all the primaries to come. Uh, I know that he put out a statement that he was going to reassess. And so perhaps his staff let him know that, well, you know, yeah, we could we could stop now, but why not keep up the conversation now that our platform and our ideas, which, as you mentioned, are so needed now and people realize how much we need them. So, you know, perhaps he's going to, you know, uh, soldier on. And uh, despite the tremendous deficit in, in delegates and maybe the remaining states, including Ohio, which postponed its primary, will come through for him. Who knows? Who knows? I, it's such a wild time right now. I don't want to even project what would happen between now and when the Democrats are having their convention. So you just mentioned the ideas of Bernie Sanders gaining such currency right now in D.C. And I guess, you know, relate, you know, before we wrap up, I have to mention how I don't know what's shocking or amusing or or curious that you have some of the right wing Republicans to the left of the corporate Democrats in terms of the things that they are offering. Uh, we had a package from the Democrats unveiled this week that had, you know, no cash payments that at one person who is a presumptive, you know, choice for a vice president for Biden recommend a $250 to single people and maybe $500 to families. And of course this pales in comparison to uh, Republican Republican proposals for, you know, 1000, 2000, other types of robust uh, remedies for families, even perhaps on a monthly basis. And and meanwhile, the the Democrats are allowing the Republicans to steal the ideas and the thunder of the candidate that they wanted to squash during this whole process. Well, in any case, it seems to me that what the Republicans are proposing is unsustainable. What I mean is, is that this money inevitably will be borrowed from China at a time when the U.S. administration is ratcheting up tensions with China. Once again, we need a reflection upon some of the ideas of Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders that are to say a billionaire's tax and using this crisis as a means to redistribute the wealth from the billionaires, from Michael Bloomberg and Jeff Bezos, back to working class families. All right. Well, as we speak, proposed legislation, proposed remedies are still being bandied about here in D.C. And we'll have to see what is actually uh, put into place, what is actually implemented. It's a real debate about whether this is going to be just like 2008, where the billionaires, Wall Street, large corporations receive bailouts, receive assistance, and then regular working people are left holding the bag. I've been speaking with uh, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And it's our third show of the month for March 2020, so it's time for our segment, The F Word, in which we discuss fascism. As our listeners know, our touchstone for The F Word is the statement by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson, who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. He said that fascism is the last stage of capitalism in the heart of the U.S. imperial center where the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. So since this week marks the 17th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, where the United States has killed, maimed, and displaced millions of Iraqis, the connection we're going to make today is between the U.S. state, the war industry, and the history of wars in the service of what are called American interests. And it seems like these interests are mainly American corporate interests. Joining me today is journalist Nicholas Davies, author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. Welcome to On the Ground, Nicholas. Thanks for having me, Esther. Well, you have a new powerful article out written with Medea Benjamin of Code Pink titled 12 Ways the U.S. Invasion of Iraq Lives on in Infamy. And just two of those 12 reasons actually is, are enough for me. Up to 2 million people killed. As I said, millions more wounded or displaced. And the fact that the war was based on a lie. But especially on this anniversary, and because I think we have to keep reminding Americans, people in this country, about the war, and especially as we are constantly being fed a narrative that we are under attack from other people, that we are victims and we are being targeted by even China, blaming China for spreading the coronavirus. So I just think that we always have to remind people of the dimensions of what the U.S. military did in Iraq and is still doing. Yes, absolutely. We have a very degraded, privatized media system in this country that essentially obscures from the American people what our government and our military are actually doing around the world. We are the only country in the world that exercises a kind of imperial sovereignty that reaches right into, in different ways, every other country of the world to advance U.S. national and corporate interests. And yet the American people live in this strange illusion of peace, even as armed forces drop bombs on other countries. Uh, at this point, the most heavily bombed one is Afghanistan. And uh, we have been dropping something in the order of, since Trump took office, it's about a bomb every 20 minutes on mm. Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, we actually were conducting an even heavier bombing campaign against Iraq and Syria on the justification of fighting ISIS. In the course of that, we destroyed two of their major cities, Mosul in Iraq and Raqqa in Syria. The U.S. artillery bombardment of Raqqa in Syria was called the heaviest U.S. artillery bombardment anywhere since the Vietnam War, and that was a U.S. military officer who defined it that way. And so here we have this this strange dystopian reality 
that, you know, 300 million Americans live under, just not being aware that our government, our tax dollars are killing people in other countries hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. And this continues. You know, when it comes to Iraq, you know, the invasion of Iraq was, was a turning point in U.S. militarism and imperialism. Senator Edward Kennedy described Bush's doctrine of preemption, by which he claimed to justify it, as a call for 21st century American imperialism that no other nation can or should accept. I would say, equally importantly, this is a kind of American imperialism that the U.S. people should not accept because we are draining and diverting, you know, really the bulk of our national resources to conduct these wars and a global military occupation with hundreds of U.S. military bases in other countries. You know, here we are in the midst of a global pandemic and the trillions of dollars that have been diverted into wars, weapons, and military spending have left us very sadly, tragically, poorly equipped to deal with this pandemic. You said a few things that I want to make sure I follow up with, you know, during our conversation. But I first wanted to have you on as a guest on this segment after reading the introduction to your book written by Benjamin Ferenc, who was a chief prosecutor during the Nuremberg trials following World War II. And I looked up his description and his trial was of the Einsatzgruppen, and that was a paramilitary death squad of Nazi Germany. And they were responsible for mass killings primarily by shooting people during the war. Um, they would round up people and, and shoot them. I mean, the Einsatz group, and they are the people who killed, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders' family and uh, wow. relatives in the town where his, his, his parents came from in Poland. Wow. You know, these, these guys, just as the German army advanced through Poland and then through, you know, the Soviet Union, these guys came right behind them, you know, with machine guns and ammunition. So they rounded them all up, uh, you know, at each uh, little town or city, uh, some of them huge, like Kiev, where, you know, something like 60,000 people were killed at Babi Yar. And, and they just, they would just take these people out somewhere outside the town and, you know, dig a big ditch and, and machine gun them and uh, into the ditch. Mm. And, they, yeah, they killed, uh, I mean, the lead defendant at, at Ben's trial, um, you know, he was convicted of killing more than, a, of the, him and his troops killing more than 100,000 people, you know, and, uh, in fact, the, that trial in the press at the time was reported as the, the largest uh, murder trial in history because these guys were convicted of killing more people than, you know, in any other trial ever. So, Ferenc, this is a person who was actually fought in the war. He was, a, uh, I guess, a fresh graduate out of Harvard Law School, and then he was a, a prosecutor at Nuremberg of this death squad. And he compares, in his introduction to your book, he talks about how the 
aggression, war crimes, and crimes against humanity were clearly uh, against international law uh, based on the, the types of standards they were using then. And, you know, he relates those same crimes to what the U.S. did in Iraq. So, you know, one of the things that I'm doing with this series, I find it often going back to comparing the things that the United States is doing, especially with its military, with what it denounced and prosecuted Germany for doing, the Nazis for doing during World War II. And kudos to you, because, you know, there is really a sort of taboo in this country on any comparison of, you know, U.S. imperialism and, and militarism to what Germany did in World War II. But in fact, in that trial, the chief defendant, who was the head of one of these Einsatzgruppen, his name was uh, Ohlendorf. He was a senior German military officer, and he justified he tried to justify German aggression in World War II on the same basis that the U.S. justifies what it's doing today. In other words, that if we don't attack these people first, they're going to attack us or attack our forces or attack our interests. And, of course, the prosecutors at Nuremberg totally rejected that defense, understandably. And so here we are committing aggression. When one country attacks another country, that is the crime of aggression. British documents have now been declassified and exposed, showing that the British government in 2002, leading up to the war in Iraq, was explicitly warned by its legal advisors that to attack Iraq would be a crime of aggression, you know, which the legal advisors called the most serious crime under international law. And in fact, that is what the judges in Nuremberg said. They justified inflicting death sentences on many of the defendants in Nuremberg on that very basis, that the crime of aggression is the supreme international crime because it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. When we look at all the millions of people killed in World War II or in Vietnam or in Iraq, who do we hold responsible for that? And the judges at Nuremberg said, the leaders of the country that start a war of aggression, that invade another country, are responsible for all of the consequences of that initial crime. And yet, here we have a situation where the Bush administration launched that war on Iraq, and, in, and then when Obama was elected, instead of holding them accountable for that, he essentially just continued their policies because he did not hold them accountable, because it was never a, a, a public uh, legal accounting of those crimes, the American people are left believing that this is, you know, that this is normal. This state of affairs is normal in which when the U.S. has a dispute with another country, we threaten them, we attack them, we impose punitive sanctions, which could be regarded as a form of warfare. It's certainly economic warfare and killing people through starvation and through, through limiting their access to life-saving drugs for preventable diseases 
is as deadly as dropping bombs on them. And yet, first Obama and now Trump have really escalated that form of economic warfare using the U.S. dominance of the global financial system. They've weaponized the power of Wall Street and the power of the dollar around the world to actually kill people in countries like Iran and Venezuela and North Korea. And well, so we there actually... are now calls in, in the midst of this pandemic for, you know, removing those sanctions to, you know, which are going to be even more deadly during the pandemic. Right. And I just wanted to remind us that Clinton also started the whole sanctions regime in Iraq. And then his Absolutely. his secretary, was it his secretary of state, Madeleine Albright, when asked if, you know, a half a million Iraqis, Iraqi children dying because of the sanctions, if that was worth it, she said, yes, it was. So yeah. and, and, uh, this is and barbaric. Friend, yeah. I met my friend Dennis Halliday, who at that point resigned as the assistant secretary general of the United Nations and his colleague Hans von Sponek, who did likewise, they were in charge of administering those sanctions in Iraq. And they said to continue with those sanctions after Albright admitted that they had killed half a million children in Iraq, made them a form of genocide. And uh, so, you know, the, the U.S. and the U.N. persisted in genocide against Iraq. Uh, and, you know, they, Halliday and von Spoenig both resigned because they could not be party to that. Yeah, you know, I, I have spoken to people uh, about the whole issue of genocide and what gets labeled and not labeled as genocide in this world we live in where the U.S. gets to dictate these definitions in a sense, because clearly what has happened to the uh, Palestinian people, what was perpetrated, even going back, uh, if you look at what happened, um, what the U.S. did in the Philippines and the millions of people killed there. I mean, there have been so many wars that you could consider not only wars of aggression, but wars of genocide that, but yet as I think uh, Mr. Fremrentz mentioned in your introduction, there have been no trials of people for aggression since Nuremberg and Tokyo. There haven't, there haven't been any, there hasn't been any accounting of these types of wars of an ag aggression that could also be called genocide. No, absolutely. I mean, in fact, at the time of the Nuremberg trials, the term genocide had not been, you know, formally recognized as a crime under international law or under national laws. It was kind of a new concept. But yes, since then it has been applied in a totally partisan, nationalistic way, used by powerful countries to condemn less powerful ones. And Ben Ferenc, beginning in, at the time of Vietnam, he really dedicated most of his life to establishing the International Criminal Court that would actually hold the leaders of countries accountable for international crimes, including aggression and genocide, the worst crimes, you know, the worst forms of mass murder committed by countries around the world. And very sadly, but predictably, you know, the U.S. completely 
tried to block the formation of the International Criminal Court. It has rejected its jurisdiction. You know, Secretary Pompeo is now threatening the families of the prosecutors at the International Criminal Court. Oh, wow. Because I didn't know that. Because, the families. Whew, yeah. This is like thug yeah, life. Because it is investigating alleged U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. And so, you know, the world is really facing a very deep crisis in, in which at stake is who actually determines what is right and wrong in the world. You know, do we live according to rules of law that are applied fairly and objectively, or are all these international institutions and, and even, you know, very concepts like aggression and genocide simply to be abused and instruments of power exercised by, you know, the United States. And, and so I, I wrote months ago an article that the underlying crisis of our time is the, the conflict between U.S. imperialism and the rule of law. And Ben Ferencz spent his life fighting for to establish the rule of law in international affairs. He has a slogan. He says, law, not war. After Nuremberg, he really hoped and, and dedicated the rest of his life to the idea that the rule of law could actually replace war as the way for countries to settle their differences. And he is still alive, approaching the age of 100. And I dedicated my book to him and said in the front of it that, you know, I hope we can make his vision a reality, if not in his lifetime, at least in ours. Okay, we're going to take a break and come back with author and journalist Nicholas Davies. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with journalist and author Nicholas Davies. And we're in this month's episode of The F Word, and we're talking about the 17th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. And I want to touch on two things that you had mentioned in your first response. And it's because my last uh, F Word segment was with uh, Omali Eshetela, who is the head of the African People's Socialist Party. 
That's a national organization that started uh, in the 1960s or 70s, coming out of the Black Power movement here. And we had a discussion about fascism versus colonialism. And when I read the George Jackson statement to him, he said, well, I don't agree with Brother George on that. He said that basically uh, those of us who are from Africa, Asia, Latin America, we are really fighting colonialism. And I raise it because when we look at the relationship of the United States to Iraq, which is still ongoing today with the Trump administration refusing to take the troops out of Iraq after the Iraqi parliament voted for the U.S. to leave, that the relationship is of uh, the colonizer and the colonized, that Iraq is being treated as a colonized people, as a colony, that we refuse to leave as if we have a right to be there. So I wanted to, to get your thoughts on that. And also related to that, I know it's a lot to squeeze in, but just the, the connection between our m- military industry, the military industry and the militarization of our culture. Yeah, well, I think Nkrumah had it absolutely right. This is neo-colonialism. And instead of the U.S. invading Iraq and saying, you know, that, well, now Iraq is part of the U.S. empire and we're going to have a governor and occupation forces there permanently and it's going to be governed from Washington. Instead, this neocolonialism, as Nkrumah said, it, it's, you know, through economics and through other forms of power you know, the colonial powers, primarily the United States in the world today, exercise control without actually the responsibility of ruling a country, you know, that as we describe in our article. And the New York Times reported this at the time. You know, former Iraqi exiles literally flew in with the occupation forces in 2003 to to take charge of the country. And this ruling class of primarily Shiite and Kurdish former exiles, these are the people who are still running Iraq. These are the people in control of the $80 billion of oil exports that Iraq finally has, having slowly, gradually, through all of this conflict, rebuilt, at least partially rebuilt its oil industry. And so, yeah, this is the face of 21st century neocolonialism and imperialism. And the young people of Iraq are in the street saying, no, you know, we want self-determination. We want our country back from these exiles who flew in with the U.S. occupation to take over our country. When Iraq voted for the U.S. to leave and then Trump said, no, we're not leaving, he threatened Iraq. If they were forced out, then Iraq's oil reserves, which are, I suppose, which are held here in the United States, would be confiscated, would be seized, just like they... They had the UK seize Venezuela's gold. You know, this is just like in- international gangsterism. But um, yeah, the, the other part of my question was really just to touch on the role of the 
what we call always the military industrial complex, military industrial congressional complex, and uh, just the the outsized role of, I guess, the defense contractors and the private industry in profiteering off of war. Yes, absolutely. Well, what we are witnessing is exactly what President Eisenhower warned us about in his farewell speech. And yes, of all the vested interests, whether it's Big Pharma and Wall Street, you know, the banks, the healthcare profiteers, out of all of them, I, I think we would have to say that the military industrial complex is one of the most powerful, certainly alongside Wall Street. And these are the interests that dominate and control U.S. policy. These are the same interests that, you know, have ensured by pouring billions of dollars into our election system that we end up having to choose between Clinton and Trump or Biden and Trump and that essentially, you know, our democracy is completely corrupted by these interests. And so how are we ever going to restore, you know, a sane, peaceful foreign policy uh, when, you know, until we can also have a a much more democratic, uh, truly democratic political system in this country. But this is the struggle that we are all faced with. And, you know, there, there is no one key to it all because, we, in effect, we have to fight on so many fronts all the time. But the people of this, the whole world, really, is, is looking to the people of this country to restore sanity and peace to our international relations. That's so important. That's so important. And and I guess we wind all the way back to where we started because you talked about the grip of corporate media on the information that people get. And I mean, most people in this country grow up learning about the the horrors of World War Two. You know, it's kind of ingrained as something that we're not right. <laughs> that was the other. That was the enemy, and and we right. were part of World right. War Two, and we were victorious over that evil. But the thing that always stays with many of us who learned that history, we always ask ourselves, why did the people in Germany go along with it? How could they do that? How could they go along with or how could they be, become under the spell of someone evil like that of like of a of a Hitler? And, you know, when I think about how people are so misinformed here, as you said, people don't know what our military is doing overseas and those of us who do know and if we try to inform people we're very much outside the mainstream we're not part of the corporate media that is basically ignoring this anniversary probably right so I wanted to just real quickly in a shorthanded way go over some of the things that you mentioned in your article just as a way of breaking through that misinformation or disinformation that people have here about our role in Iraq. So we mentioned millions of Iraqis killed, wounded, or displaced, thousands of American and other troops killed, wounded, or psychologically scarred, trillions wasted that could be used in the U.S. for human needs, The country, this country's failing infrastructure, or addressing the climate catastrophe. This was an illegal war, 
and it undermined international law, including impunity for systemic war crimes and destruction of the environment, and also the fact that the U.S. divide and rule policy in Iraq spawned havoc, leading to the reemergence of al-Qaeda, the formation of ISIS, and a new Cold War. And I just thought that was just really powerful. I'm reading from the article by my guests, Nicholas Davies and Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, 12 Ways the U.S. Invasion of Iraq Lives on in Infamy. And I'm going to have to, to leave it there. I've been speaking with journalist Nicholas Davies, author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. Thank you for joining me today, Nicholas, on this anniversary to just remind people what is what is really the history and what are the facts. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Esther. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can also support us on Patreon.com forward slash On The Ground. The music we played this hour are all tunes by the late, great McCoy Tyner, who joined the Ancestors earlier this month, March 2020, at the age of 81. Little Brother, Afro Blue, and Song of the New World. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.